We didn't study Psalm 38. I'm periodically just going through different psalms, and I landed on Psalm 39. I felt that's what the Lord was directing us to. It's a good match with Psalm 40, which we'll look at next week. But in Psalm 38, for King David, came the knowledge of his sinful nature. He can be like so many of us can. He can be very judgmental. We can look at the sin on other people and look down our nose at them, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're all the same because we are, and that's how God sees us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's been said that pride, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's the sin that all others are built upon. It's the foundation for that which is contrary, I should say, in that and those who are contrary to God. It was the most original of sin. It's the sin that Lucifer committed as he was even, well, most theologians believe that he was the worship leader in heaven. But in Isaiah 14, 14, he's quoted as saying, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. His pride drove him to want the position that only God would be able to occupy. Pride Pride was the source of man's original sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, it says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, that forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So notice the correlation between Lucifer's sin and man's first sin and the temptation that Lucifer used. I mean, again, the pride, the foundation of sin, Lucifer wanted to be like the Most High. And we even see that instilled in the heart of man in his sinful nature. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Guess what? You're never going to be like God. We continue to, and we'll see this Sunday mornings as we're studying First John, we continue to work at a condition that glorifies God and reflects Jesus Christ to those whom we're able to have influence over, but we'll never achieve that status. A prideful man, he forsakes God. He places himself in God's place. The Bible tells us the fool has said in his heart, No, God, it's as if the fool knows better than God does. Truly, he is a fool. Pride causes us not to submit to anybody, let alone to God. To God, man's pride is expressed as anger, disobedience, and probably the worst thing at all. of all. I would think the worst thing of all, the worst symptom of pride is the refusal to repent because each and every one of us who are born again at some point we had to come to the realization of our sinful nature we had to acknowledge our sins and even just the chief sin we refused god and we acknowledged that we were wrong of our interpretation of god and our interpretation of self there had to be a breaking of pride but it was through the breaking of pride that we were able to come to repentance and cast ourselves at the mercy and the grace of our Lord. To fellow man, pride is expressed as a dislike because pride, well, pride causes us to set the standard of what we believe to be right or even perfect. Pride is the source of greed. How much more does the rich man want? Always a little bit more. The overly ornate woman, the one who conducts herself according to outward appearance. Again, that pride is going to be temporary, and at some point, regardless male or female, the exterior will be peeled away, and the interior is that which will be revealed. 
the athlete, very prideful in his accomplishments and what he is able to do, but it's fleeting, and sooner or later, that is going to pass as well. Matter of fact, looking in the sports arena, you see just perfect examples of pride. Matter of fact, I can remember I was a coach on my son's baseball league, and the manager for the team, and this was the last game that I was there, I think it might have been the last game that Sean was there too, but... Um, there was a young kid who was umpiring the game. And, and the guy who was the head coach, he was, I don't know, at that time he was in his 40s. But there was like an 18, 16-year-old kid that was umpiring the game. And he called the play, and I don't remember even what it was, but this coach determined that he was wrong. And I'll never forget, he, like you see on TV, he ran out, he got in this young kid's face, and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs. And then he looks down, and he starts kicking dirt on him. And, and this kid was reduced to tears and just walked away. And I'm just thinking, my gosh, that, that was just, the, you know, and we got all of these fourth grade kids, whatever they were, they're all watching that. And we're seeing, well, what was the problem? Well, this man, this coach, and I kind of saw this, but he built his identity through his team. And what had happened, this umpire did something contrary to his team. And it was a reflection on him well, this was pride. Pride pride doesn't allow us to be wrong. Pride doesn't allow us to be out. Pride doesn't allow us to be fouled or to foul others. Pride doesn't allow penalties to go on because, again, it just speaks to the prideful that he was wrong or he failed and he's going to stand up for himself. That's why in pretty much every sporting event you see against those who rule the field or the court or whatever, there's always that intense hate. That's the hate that is directed towards our law enforcement and our authorities because we just don't like to be told what to do because we believe we know better. So in order to be released from this condition, a prideful condition, a series of things has to happen. As I said earlier, there has to be a breaking. When was the breaking in your life? The breaking in our life, I say ours, my wife and myself, it was really hard. It was really hard. Matter of fact, that which I was probably the most prideful, my business sense and my ability to do what I did for an occupation, started my own business, all these things, God just took it all away. It was really hard. It was a tough breaking. Matter of fact, my father, I was able to see a third party in him, very prideful man, self-made man a man who a lot of people would look up to and a lot of people would respect, God brought him down through cancer, something he, he, had, he controlled, every, or at least tried to control everything in his life. But this, this was out of control. But it was in the midst of this breaking that God met him. I don't wish that upon anybody, but it turned out to be a huge blessing for his eternity. And so God will allow sickness. What happens when sickness comes? And again, just even, I just had a cold a couple of weeks ago, and you're sitting there and you just want to go away, but you can't make it go away. You pray and you endure. You know, okay, in a week, it'll, it'll more than likely be gone, but as for that day, there's nothing that you can do. Monetary loss, what happens when it's all gone? What happens when you lose the job? What happens when you're brought to that place and how hard that can truly be? What about when you're brought to the point of submission, especially somebody who you thought you were superior to and you're not, matter of fact, even to God. The nutcracker God uses is sin that is illuminated by his word. We come to this understanding of our imperfection. We come to the understanding of the magnitude of our pride and how far we truly are from God. 
and again. I can either, oh, I can either walk away and trying to hold on to the fragments of my pride and my life and whatever it else that it might be, my health and my finances, or I can just release it unto the Lord. But what happens when you, or what's the problem with just releasing, and when I say by releasing, just simply trusting in God? You take yourself out of the position of control. I don't do well with that. I like to control as well. I'm a chip off the old block of my father. But God, God brings us to that place where we are dependent upon him. And there's no better place to be. And you know, I wasn't raised that way, to, just to sit back and to wait on the Lord. I was raised to go and to make it happen, to do, to work harder. But that's not what God desires of us. God desires that we would give him the glory for all things. And so as far as the things that God allows, it's for the purpose of fostering relationship. Fostering relationship for your born-again experience but God continues to do the same work in your life even today. Why? Because pride is always going to exist to some point. Matter of fact, you may stand up right now and come up against that and say, I am the only one in this room who lacks pride whatsoever. Well, you and your prideful attitude and not having pride just need to sit down because we can so build ourselves up upon anything. And so we have to always understand and realize that that is what we are going to be constantly dealing with. And it's from pride that it seems like everything else, contrary to God, extends from. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, it says, These things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And the first one that is mentioned is a proud look. A proud look is what is exhibited from the core of pride within us. It's an outward expression of pride. And again, the biggest problem is, is a prideful man will never admit his sin. If we never admit or repent of our sin, then we will never see salvation. Again, Jesus preached that message, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So as I said before, in chapter 38, King David, he looked at wickedness. And it's so easy to become prideful when we see the wickedness in others. We look at unbelievers as if we're special according to our own abilities, kind of like that Pharisee that, thank you, God, that you did not make me like this tax collector here. Well, Jesus said it was the tax collector who repented that went away justified and not that man. That man was prideful. But the problem is, or I shouldn't say the problem because this is a good thing, but it's a hard thing. In chapter 38, after looking at the wicked, David also realized just as truly as wicked they are, he came to this knowledge, so am I, so am I. These people that I've been pointing the finger at, these people that I've been complaining about, God, I'm no better. And then in 38 verses 17 through 18, For I am ready to fall, or the idea is I'm ready to die, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin. He's come to this realization, and now there's no denying it. And so, how are you going to deal with it, David? Well, 
look at the previous chapter once again, chapter 38, verses 21 and 22, because remember a lot of these chapters, they'll bleed into the next one. And we're going to see at the end of our study here tonight how 39 will bleed into 40. Actually, I wanted to teach 40, but then I saw chapter 39. Okay, this is great uh, preface to chapter 40. But in verse 21 of chapter 38, he says, Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Do not be far from me. Now, why does anybody say, do not forsake me and do not be far from me? Because at that point, it's not that God left, it's that he left, but his impression of God is that God has forsaken him and that God is far from him. He says in verse 22, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Why would he say that? Because he's lost. He's lost and he realizes that he is separated from God and he needs that which God has to offer. And so now in chapter 39, David sees some realities concerning himself as well as really as all of mankind. The title doesn't give us a whole lot of insight other than it's just penned by King David to the chief musician to Jedith, a psalm of David. Jedithan is either an instrument or it very well could be a worship leader and more than likely that that's what it is. But nonetheless, this is a psalm of David. And so understanding the personality of David, we can understand to a degree of where he is coming from. We'll look at this psalm in four stanzas to see what God is doing. And the first stanza is very important. It's the contemplation. And notice that it does not, for a prideful man, it doesn't start out very well whatsoever. Look at the first two words. I said, don't care what you said. What did God say? He, he, he could have avoided the rest of this psalm and probably a couple of others if he just looked to what you said, to what God said. And so what is going to follow is going to be the wrong way to go. And so what we see here is this is man going according to his own wisdom, according to his own knowledge. And so again, verses 1 through 3, I said, I will guard my ways. Now, it kind of sounds good, but this is all about what he is going to do, not seeking God. So keep that in the back of your mind. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. Have you ever been able to do any of that? Have you ever been able to really restrain your tongue? How many times have you said, I'm, gonna, I'm just not going to even go there. I'm just not going to say that. And then all of a sudden, bam, I know Deborah has. <laughs> I mean, my wife and I, we don't argue, we don't fight, but sometimes we have intense conversations. And um, there's been times when God says, you know, I'm thinking, and God says, you know what you're thinking now? Don't even say it. Don't even say it. And I think, you're right, Lord. I ought not to say that because it's just going to exasperate the situation and the whole thing. And then I go ahead and I say it because we're just people of the flesh. We're imperfect people. So David is, is making this decision. See, he's not repenting. He's not coming to God. He's trying to make things better himself. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace, even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. The idea is I had no control over it. I got no control over the natural man. The natural man is a wild man, and he just seems to do whatever it is that causes him to feel good or whatever it is that enables his pride to be stroked. And so David 
we see this heavy burden that sin can be. And what he experienced because of his sins was rebuke and chastisement from the Lord, an inner decay with conviction and guilt, an abandonment by family and friends and feelings of death. So having just experienced all this in the previous chapter, David just makes the determination, well, this is real easy, I just won't sin anymore. I I just won't even make the effort anymore. Again, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. What he seeks to avoid is the revelation of his sinful nature because ultimately that's the problem. Remember what Jesus said in, um, in Matthew 15, 11? It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man because that reveals our heart. It's the inner person that is exposed through these things. And so, David, it's not so much, yeah, it is, but it's not so much the things you do or the things you say. It's the intent of the heart. It's the depths of the inner person here. It's that change that only God is able to do. And God goes deep. You know, Jim, we've been praying for Jim. Why? Because he had a heart transplant. Well, this goes even deeper than that. It goes to the inner person. And that's where the change needs to come about. That's where the transplant, if you will, needs to happen. And so what he seeks to avoid here again is the revelation of his sinful heart to others. He, know what, he knows what dwells inside and thinks that he is able to hide it, but he's not going to be able to do it. And so the problem here is he knows deep inside he can't change his nature, but maybe I'm able to mask it. Maybe I'm able to present myself as a good person. And that's what people do. You know people who are not born again or not saved, but you'll look at that person and say, that guy's a really good person. Well, what he is is he's not good because nobody is good except for God. He's good at masking his sinful nature. He still has evil thoughts. He still sins and does evil deeds. He is not right in the sight of God if he is not born again. But what he's doing is, and again, it's one of those things that could be deadly to a person. Because when everybody thinks you're good, you start thinking you're good as well. And what happens when you think you're good? You don't seek out our God. And if you don't seek out our God, then you die in your sins. Because again, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 2, I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burnt. Then I spoke with my tongue. So David is trying to isolate himself from the bad. Unfortunately, he's isolating himself from the good. He's internalizing all of these things instead of laying out before the God. And what's happening, it's like when you get that bottle of soda and you shake it up and you shake it up and you shake it up. I remember my dad revealed that childhood joy of being able to shake up a soda and spray other people with it well it was all fun and games until we shook up my father's soda as he Mike, you know my dad you know we had a two-story house and michael i'd be up doing my homework come all the way down yeah put it on channel two or mike give me a coke well we can be four so i'm shaking up the soda and i give it to him and he opens it and it sprays all over the place and i'm laughing hysterically but he wasn't matter of fact he was mad. He had this pent-up rage within inside of him that spilled out just as surely as that soda did in that bottle. Well, that's what's going on here with King David. David examines his dilemma, and David is at a place where only he can, well, he's muse. To muse 
To muse is to meditate, is to ponder, and to think deeply. Because see, even though he's trying to deal with these things, he knows it's not working. Okay, what, what needs to go on here? Remember who King David is. David's king. He can have anything, anytime. He can anywhere. A multitude of wives and concubines, riches and all that comes with it. So much to keep his attention. But God's got him in this place that now he's musing. He's considering all of these things. And so he takes this time to muse. This is good because David, as well as us, we spend our time doing the opposite. Now, A, if you're moral, that means you're a moral person. We would say you adhere to biblical morals. But if you add A to that, it adds a negative connotation to it. If you're amoral, that means you're not a moral person. You do not Again, we would say, conform yourself to biblical standards. Now, to muse is to think deeply. But if you put an A on the front of it, you're amusing yourself. Now, to muse is to think and contemplate these things. And we're going to see at the end of next week anyway that that turns out to be a good thing for King David. But what are we doing in our society today? We amuse ourselves. And I'm just talking about a cross-section of society. We spend kids spend nowadays hours upon hours in the you know the video games and you know disneyland is going to explode at the seams this year because the star wars thing is going on now i'm not saying disneyland is of the antichrist or sin i've been to disneyland and it's fun but there's just some people who immerse themselves into these things and why do they do that because they don't want to muse and since they don't want to amuse, they don't want to contemplate their situation. And so they amuse. They, they don't think they do these things which are amusing. And probably the best example of this is what so many of us do every night. We come and we plant ourselves in front of the TV. And we amuse ourselves for four hours. And we turn around and we go to bed. I don't want to have to deal with anything. I've been thinking all day long. And I just want to check out. And I just want to relax. And we put on this mind, these mindless television shows that really, they have no positive effect in anybody's life whatsoever. And we amuse ourselves. We entertain ourselves because, well, the world, the problem is the world doesn't want to face reality. Now we know, because I say it all the time, and we've seen it in the scriptures in John chapter 16, what does the Spirit do? It convicts the world of sin righteousness and judgment so everybody in this world who is not a born-again believer is convicted of sin righteousness and judgment and they don't want to think about that why because pride will not allow them to come to god and pride will not allow them to admit that they were wrong and there's where the rub is as far as us you know and it's all we are told to do is to preach the gospel we save nobody so don't get me wrong on that but in the preaching of the gospel, what God does is he brings them to the point of admitting that they're sinners and admitting that up to, their, up to this point in their life, they've been wrong about everything. Because if you're wrong about God, you're wrong about everything. And that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to admit. And so David is at this point, and this is a good point to be. He's thinking deeply. He's meditating. He's contemplating his life, where he is at, and why he is where he is. Verse 3, My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burnt. Then I spoke with my tongue. All of these things were 
in me and I couldn't contain them anymore. Second stanza is the question, verses four through six. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor, selah. Selah, once again, is a musical interlude for the purpose of musing, for the purpose of contemplation. Verse 6, surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. You kind of see a parallel here with what David's son Solomon was contemplating in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything that I have and all of these things, what difference does it really make? If I don't have this right relationship with God, if there's this sin that has entered in and has caused this separation for me to feel this separation, then really, what is man's reason? What is man's purpose? And it says almost that he's considering how much longer, Lord, how much longer do I have to deal with this? In Job chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, Oh, that I may have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off, that I would just die. And Job was at those depths. David seems to be at those depths here. And there's times that we can all be at those depths. Not that we contemplate suicide, but Lord, just wouldn't it be better if I just died and went home to be with you? But we have a God who's, we're willing to start over with him. He'll, he'll start over with us. If we repent, he hears us, and God deals with us and ministers to us. And so David, David had ignored, and, and I, I don't know the specific situation but David had ignored the sinful issues in his life and he just allowed them to continue, just like that bottle of soda, to continue to well up, well up, and now it's starting to burst forward as he is acknowledging these things. And again, he wants, God, show me, what is the measure of my days? He's wanting to know the bereavity of his life. Show me, God, what this life is about and the shortness of life and, and the purpose, Lord, that you have given to me. Make me to know the shortness of life that I may completely cast myself upon you and your will, that I would be brought back to the right place, the place, God, that you desire for me. Even Moses had this musing as well in Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17, when Moses, this is a psalm that is written by Moses, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I'll just let it go at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, Remember when we were praying for Jim, we prayed for a heart. But I also brought up, we're praying for a heart, and the heart that he's going to get means that somebody has to die. And that person may not even know at that point the day of his death. And as it turns out, that pretty much came to pass. And we prayed for two people who lost loved ones. Two different uh, people had prayer requests tonight for people who lost loved ones. They didn't know that those people were going to die. And so, Lord, teach us to number our days, to understand, Lord, that life, life is so fragile, that, God, I wouldn't spend these times in sin. I wouldn't spend these times with this perceived separation from you, God, but I would value every day that you have given me as a gift, and I would embrace these days and all for you, all for Jesus. God knows the day of our birth, and he knows the moment of our death. It's hidden in his hand. Whatever man is, 
He is nothing before God, but God does number our days because God counts. See, to number somebody's days is to know each day and count it as important or count it as something to be valued. God values every day on this planet that he has given us. He has given each and every one of us here a desire and even a passion for life. And as he has done so, he has done so for his reasons and his purposes. I don't remember when I was talking about this, but if it wasn't like that, we would just become born again and then God would just kill us and take us up into heaven. Why would we need to stay? But God's got reason and purpose and he's given us a passion for his, him, for his things, his ministry, and the people who so need to know him. Third stanza is the realization of the hand of God, verses 7 through 11. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. Well, the reproach of the foolish, he was the fool. Because now, remember previous in verse 1, I said, but now he's saying, verse 7, through his musings and the realization of his sinful nature and the bereavity of his life, and now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was a mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. You removed your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. So this is the chastisement of God, is that which is designed to bring us to repentance. When the rebukes you corrected man for, when, when with rebukes you corrected man for iniquity, you made his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is a vapor, Selah. So God has stripped away everything and forced David to look at man's plight. He hasn't come to the full awareness of repentance and restoration yet. Uh, But the idea here is, is amuse yourself no more. Amuse yourself no more. And man, the ways that he amuses himself, well, sobriety is what the drunk and the drug addict, they try to avoid. Idleness is what grieves the workaholic. And quiet is what scares the one who has no peace. Lord, enable us to face reality. Enable us to face the difficult things in life. Enable me to face, number one, my sinful nature. And again, if you're born again, you have done that and you've repented of it. But Lord, enable me to embrace and, and face my imperfections. That I would realize I'm God's gift to this church, but so is he and so is she and, and we all are. We're all equal in your sight, and not one of us stands out above anybody else. Help me to understand that. Help me to understand if I have a ministry and and, and people are looking up to me as God has placed me in a leadership or you're in a leadership or whatever, understand the privilege that that is. It's not just the church looking for somebody to fill some kind of spot, but it's a calling from God that he has chosen to place you there for his reasons and purposes and learn to value those things as being dear. Verse 7, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Why would God even be involved in the life of mankind anyway? There's nothing that we do that affects God. There's nothing we do that really hurts God or contributes to God. Why does God continue to work in our lives? For the purpose of preparing us for eternity and the purpose of using others for that reason as well, that we would be used by the Lord for his glory and just honor him 
That's all he's ever asked for, that we would love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Then fourthly, the fourth stanza, there's the continuing on in verses 12 through 13. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. You look at this and you're thinking, Pastor Mike, this doesn't finish very well. Uh, again, you know, verse 14, hear my prayer. That means he's thinking that God's not hearing his prayer. Give ear to my cry. Well, he's thinking that God's not listening to him. Do not be silent in my tears. God's not speaking to him. For I'm a stranger with you. We, we don't have that fellowship that we used to. A soldier, as all of my fathers were, am I just here temporarily? Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength. Well, this is the absolute worst thing that could happen. You need to be in the shadow of God's wings. You need to be under the gaze of God. But this conviction is, is, is driving him crazy. He says, before I go away and am not, this is going to kill me, Lord. And so, again, you look at this Psalms and what happened? Doesn't end very well. Now, I've mentioned it before. You can take the first verse and the last verse, put them together, and you get a good idea on the psalm. Verses 1 and verse 13. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with the muzzle while the wicked are before me. And then verse 13. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. It just seems like total despair. But this is what brought me to Psalm 39 tonight. Because again, the previous song so many times, and it applies here, it bleeds into the next psalm. So let me read verses 12 through 13, and then verses 1 through 3 in Psalm 40. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a soldier as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me, that I may regain strength before I go away and no more. So David's in this quagmire of a mess, but what did God do? God heard his prayer. God gave ear to his cry. God was not silent at his tears. God was no longer a stranger with him. And then we move in to Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay, and set my feet upon the rock and established my steps. He has put a new song of fresh awareness of grace, a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. And, and, and that last part just resonates. Many will see it in fear and trust in the Lord. There's going to be a lot of people who read Psalm 38, Psalm 39 throughout the course of history, and then Psalm 40 and realizes David was so lost as we were lost, even as a person who was a child of God, it's God who answered the prayer, and it's God who has moved in his life, and it's God who has restored him or put this new song in his mouth as he realizes God has once again turned his attention to David because David has once again turned his attention to God. Father, we just thank you, Lord, just for these pictures of your grace and just how important they are, how strong they are, and how powerful they are. 
And I pray, Father, for any of us who finds ourselves in the position that David did, that, Lord, we would truly die to pride and just simply cast our cares upon you, that we would submit ourselves to you, Father, and, Lord, that we would wait patiently and see you come and do that great work within our lives as well. Psalm 39 ends gloriously. It just ends in Psalm 40. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people, once again, who would embrace your word. And as we embrace it, we would see the reality of who you are and how you continue to work in and through our lives. For that, God, we give you the glory. In this last song, Father, I pray that we would be a people that would just sing out your praises. And so, Lord, we just thank you that you have given us this day. Bless us and use us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all stand, please?